You're listening to Belief Beat, where we talk about things that matter with people who matter. I'm Sherry Lorbeck from Unity Lutheran Church, and I'm this week's host. And I am here with Unity member Dennis Horn, who has spent his career in the aviation business and has so many stories to tell us uh, and uh, reflect on uh, of his life uh, behind the cockpit or in the cockpit over the years. And I'm guessing that you're wife and your kids have probably heard these stories maybe once or twice, Dennis, but all of us, it is is, um, all new to us and we would love to hear anything that you could share with us. So why don't you just uh, share a little bit about who you are and and how you got into the field? Well, uh, yeah, Dennis Horn and uh, I've lived in Brookfield for since 1959 and uh, we moved out here into a farmer's field. My dad was an engineer. I'm a second oldest of nine kids, and uh, I was the oldest boy. And my dad was always uh, fascinated with airplanes. And being an engineer, you know, how they're built, you know, the construction. But as a kid, you know, he built models mostly out of balsa wood and things, where we were building them out of plastic. And so um, I developed an interest in aviation very young because Sundays would be after church, uh, let's go down to the airport, let's go to an open house, let's go to the military wings, let's go to EAA, let's go. And so, and then there happened to be pilots in the neighborhood, unfortunately, uh, from World War II, which I didn't find out until later, um, that had flown during the war and were in the military. We had a uh, a guard general living in the neighborhood or uh, who became a guard general eventually, but he was a guard colonel at the time. So we were down as Cub Scouts and then Boy Scouts down at the uh, guard units mm-hmm. for touring down there, the old refuelers and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it just looked so fascinating to me um, that, oh, I should go to the Air Force Academy. I should do this, do that. Wow. I ended up getting glasses. Oh, <laughs> kind of eliminated you from flying. Wow. Um, so I was really disappointed <laughs> that, you know, if I went to a, an academy, I wouldn't be able to do that. Um, so I looked at doing something else. I love science and math. And so I went to school and I was kind of leaning towards pre-med, which I had my curriculum at Marquette was leaning towards being a doctor. And I said, okay. well, if I'm a doctor, maybe I could afford my own airplane, you know? Ah, right. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, because uh, a lot of people that I knew that flew were doctors, actually, yeah. even at church. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, so I mean, kind of was that it was fascinating. Medicine was fascinating. And um, my well, senior how great year, great that your dad just helped you to, you know, you know, take this, this love of, of flying and planes and uh, just support you and encourage you in that. And well, because, you know, we were talking about that um, earlier is, um, <laughs> you know, I had I had a number of my grandfathers and my father. Uh, one was an attorney who went to school and another one was worked for the railroad. And the, and these men were always really happy with what they did for a living. Oh. You know, even my dad, I think my dad would love to have flown mm-hmm. and he was in the Navy and he said one of his quips always was he goes, so I joined the Navy at 17 
they needed pilots, but he says, I didn't think I was smart enough to be a pilot. Oh. <laughs> I said, Dan, you're a structural engineer. You know, <laughs> I think you were. He goes, yeah, but I was just out of high school and, ah. you know, so, but he had kept that interest his, his whole life, but they also loved doing what they were doing. So ah. to find that part of you, I think we were talking about this is what's your passion in life, mm -hmm. um, being a pastor, you know, you get a calling. I don't know, maybe, you know, work is kind of some of that for some people too. And, uh, but, but I kind of left the aviation part behind when I was in school until the year, the summer between my junior and senior year in college, <laughs> I was working, driving truck. Okay. And we would meet at this one little place over here in the town of Brookfield mm -hmm. called the Tracks. And a friend of mine was selling used cars. You know, he wasn't going to college. And he came in and he was all gung-ho about he had taken this $5 introductory flying lesson over at Timberman Field. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I bought, $5. I know, because they just <laughs> wanted to get you into flying. Okay. And I went, What? And he goes, oh, I'm going to be a pilot. I'm going to be, I was, I was so angry. I remember going home and, 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 and uh, just saying to my mom, you know, I think I wanted to be a pilot, but you know, mm -hmm. this guy is starting to fly and I, you know, I've always wanted to fly. And then she, and now she looked at me and said, if you want to do this, you'll find a way. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Can you finish college first, though? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, no, she wanted, she liked the medical part. She was a nurse. Yeah. She liked the fact that, oh, yeah, go be a doctor. That'd be great, yeah. you know. And That's then, serious. you know, senior year just worked out. I, I took another job and took that money okay. to go fly with. And, uh, -huh. uh all this money was to go fly over at Timmerman. So I took the $5 introductory lesson and uh, uh, yeah, it was like, Oh my gosh. You mean, and he let me fly right away. He gave me the wow. controls said, you know, have at it. I'm at it. <laughs> and it was, it was just, it was just, you and knew. Then you were hooked, weren't you? You know, and, but it had its, it's, you know, it, there's always that fearful moment when, because they pull the engine on you and say, what are you going to do? Find a right. field to land in and, and this, and because uh, you only have one engine at that point. Um, and I remember one time I was out practicing by myself after I had soloed and I the radio went out oh, and boy. I had to get back into the airport. And here I was a, a student pilot and I had to get back into the airport, you know, and you're supposed to talk on the radio and to get right. permission from get the clear. tower. And I'm calling, calling. Well, they could hear me, but I couldn't hear them. Oh. <laughs> so next thing I know, there's a spotlight on my airplane. This, ah. the, and they have they have light signals. Mm -hmm. And I knew what the light signals were. I'm like, continue to the airport is flashing green to be followed by green, which means clear to land. And, I, and so I come, I'm like, oh, this is working, you know. So I just came <laughs> green and I landed on the runway. And I came in and my instructor and I were going to go out after that. And I said, we can't take this airplane. There's the radio doesn't work. And he, I think he turned white. He goes, how'd you, how'd you get back in? I said, well, the tower flashed me the, the green light. And the other one. Wow. Like, oh my goodness. Well, good were, that you were able that, you know? to figure that out really fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, and then at the end, it's just this whole thing of saying, I think we had talked about, or I had said, mentioned to you about, we were reading Mark Twain and how Mark Twain yeah. wanted to be a, a riverboat pilot. Mm -hmm. He thought the greatest job in the world would be to be a riverboat pilot. And 
So I'm reading this and I'm going, yeah, that sounds like a cool job, you know, and everything. And you can see, and then he came up with the quip that I'm sure people might have heard before is, um, you know, if I went to work as a riverboat pilot, I never would be going to work because work is something you do when you'd rather be doing something else. Mm-hmm. And I thought, that's a that's a great philosophy. I wrote that in so many applications, oh, that's <laughs> the airlines and things like that. Yeah. Uh, because that's what I felt all of a sudden. I go, God, if I could fly every day. Yeah. So then one other quick thing is you used to be able to go up on the top of the uh, at, down at Mitchell Field for 10 cents. You could put 10 cents in this thing and you could go to the roof of the airport. Really? And you could watch the airplanes come in uh, to all the gates out there, the Northwest 727s in it. Okay. And so, you know, I'd go down there and put my 10 cents in there and <laughs> walk along that ramp and look at this going, could I see myself doing that? Could I see myself doing that? And I'm like, okay, how do I even start? Yeah. You know, how do you even start this without going to the military because mm-hmm. military had steeper restrictions after Vietnam and, yeah. and I wasn't going to maintain the vision restrictions they had. So yeah. I well, wasn't going to you that you, you followed that dream and that, that passion in your heart to you know do what you loved. And so then since you didn't go the air force route, how, how did you get into the, the commercial flying route? Well, I, you know, it took me, um, the thing about, about doing anything that requires some sort of physical, you know, uh, uh, and mental um, requirements, like flying an airplane, is you have to develop uh, habit patterns. And I was a baby, I could, I could fly maybe once or twice a month. And finally, my instructor just said, you got to fly more so you can develop uh-huh. these habit patterns, you know? Yeah. And so eventually he, I had to take some more money out of my college fund and I put it as the down payment over at Timberman. Okay. And then we got to fly more than, you know, once, twice a month, we flew pretty routinely and things come a lot easier once you've done it mm-hmm. one day in a row, two days in a row, three days in a row. And then next thing you know, you solo. And then I just said, okay, I'm working towards my private. Well, I got my private in, uh, June that next year, right as I was graduating college, and that's when I made my mind up that I think I need to <laughs> pursue aviation. Uh. To the disappointment of my mother and the <laughs> and, and and the support of my father. I was going to say that so, maybe the joy of your dad, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, if you think you can do this, he was a very quiet man, but he was okay. it was funny to hear him. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I know people don't re- maybe remember the green sheet in uh, in the journal. And there happened to be an article that said there was going to be a shortage of pilots. Oh, again, right. Back in the back in the early 70s, because these guys were uh, airlines were expanding and guys, there weren't a lot of pilots in the pipeline anymore from the war, from the military, et cetera, et cetera, you know kind of that's where they were getting most guys for commercial aviation. Mm -hmm. So getting into it, I said, well, if I could just do charter and this do a corporate job, I'd probably be just as happy if I never got an airline job. But Mm -hmm. the the airline job is kind of that top of the top of the commercial world, you know, Mm -hmm. um, as far as status and and income and Um, retirement and all that other stuff at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, when I said I was going to pursue this and not go to graduate school, 
you know, like I said, uh, wasn't my mom wasn't real happy. But mm-hmm. so I worked for a year, uh, a couple of jobs, saved up a bunch of money, and I looked for flight schools, and eventually went down to Florida to a flight school, who's uh, a big corporate training uh, company oh. called Flight Safety, and and they had a really interest, and they were advertising in Flying Magazine and all these other you know, uh, uh, light airplane magazines to come down and get your commercial instrument, blah, blah, blah. Because mm-hmm. the best, and their quote was this, the best safety device in any aircraft is a well-trained pilot. Oh, And I said, yeah. what an excellent, <laughs> Yeah. there again, you know, work, work is something you do and you'd rather be doing something else. Yeah. Best safety device is a well-trained pilot. Yeah. I believe that that philosophy. So I said, this is the school I got to go to. Yeah. Well, it goes back to what you said about practice, you know, with anything you choose in life, it really, you have to put in the time and the hours and, you know, the education. Right. It's not just aviation. It's so many jobs that, that people do that, that we make look so easy. Like you standing up in front <laughs> of a congregation and speaking without a, a prompter or without this, just from your heart or and, and from your your uh, you know practice maybe in your in your mind beforehand and everything, but just doing it so naturally and and how terrifying that is for most people, right? Mm. Well, yeah. I was gonna say yeah. there's a lot of things that we could fear in life, and sometimes people are afraid to fly an airline or on an airplane. Um, what what have you found that you know some some people have told you um, what what's out of their their control with being oh, well, a that was- passenger? Can I? I'll just tell you my own experience. So once I started doing this, I had a good friend that was getting married in Michigan. So I thought to myself, I have not ever been on a commercial airplane. So I bought just a ticket from Milwaukee to Detroit. Okay. And the first airplane we were on was this DC-10, which is like sits two hundred and fifty people, right? And it's huge. It's it's a wide body airplane. It's it's just a huge. I got my little ticket here, you know, for one hundred eighty four dollars or whatever round trip. And I get out and I'm walking down two aisles. Do this. I, I was never so scared in my life. Really? I got into my seat. I'm over the wing. I'm looking at this massive wing sitting out there. And I'm thinking there's only one guy that does this whole airplane. And later on, you know, and I knew my, I couldn't even drink anything. The flight attendant came around and said, do you want to? I go, no, no, I'm fine. I'm just Because <laughs> just thinking that one guy had all this responsibility and this massive machine can take off and get up in the air. And so you, psychologically, when you, when I started looking into uh, why people were afraid to fly, mm-hmm. I think we were talking at one time, you know, or I've said over again, most men and people like being in control. Mm. And, and one of the things is if you feel like you're loss of control, that's a huge fear for most people, and especially mm-hmm. men, especially men that do re- very responsible jobs or any, I mean, any kind of Anybody. job. That yeah. Flying an airplane is something that they can't just learn on the fly to go do, you know, but if I'm driving a car, somebody else is driving, you know, it's not the same fear factor because I, I can drive the car if I need to drive the car, yeah. you know, or you feel like you could control the situation if you're on oh, ice well, or yeah, exactly. another I'm driver. In, in. You can veer out of the way. 
Yeah, and you and you get people coming on the airplane saying that to you all the time. Are you guys okay? Is everybody healthy? Does <laughs> everybody, you know, I mean, and I said, because that's a regulation too, which right. says I have to evaluate myself before I go fly to say that am I mentally, physically able to do the job today? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things you're asking, what do you prep? how you prep for a job mm-hmm. it's not like other jobs do you have a little bit of a head cold do you have this do you you know do you stay home you know most people can go to work with a little bit of a head cold and right then what drug do you take if you want to dry yourself up we can't take all these drugs so mm-hmm. you know there's a, that that was a a, a thing for prepper a prep for going flying also. So, but I never thought I'd be so afraid. And then the second time coming back on a little smaller airplane is a 727. I sat way in the back by the engines and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm better at it today. <laughs> of thinking somebody else can do this. Cause it, you kind of go, he's had training. He continues to have training. He has a medical. Cause mm-hmm. I knew kind of the qualifications necessary to get there. He's got, a co-pilot, he's got a flight engineer, mm-hmm. you know, there's other people that can take over and, yeah. you know, so I was like, yeah, no, they make sense, you know, and these guys are probably military and the military was pretty intense in training back in those days, still mm-hmm. are, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, no, yeah, just, uh, I, okay, I'm good with this. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But, but if I fly with this person that's not good at flying, like, like my wife, Debbie, and, and she'll be like, is that noise a good noise? Is that noise? What it, is that supposed to be making that noise? That's just uh, it. Is it to, normal engine noise or. Right. And because I'm reading and, and everything. And, mm-hmm. and I, but if I heard something that I said, honey, if I hear something that I'm not supposed to, I, I probably put my book down. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and go, that... Okay, that doesn't sound good, you know, uh, um... so. But, you know, I think that's true for any new situation we might find ourselves in life, too. I mean, you know, even as as you loved um, the possibility of being a pilot, to be a passenger was a, a little unique experience. And you know, anything it, it, It's harder to be a passenger right now, even, I'm telling you. I, yeah. To sit in the back and just go, you know, okay, <laughs> why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? Because when you were part of the decision-making, it, I, I don't know, it just, you know, it was your job, you know, so you're yeah. like, Okay, what are they doing? Are they making this decision? Are they making that decision? Why are they doing this? Why, you know, because it's the captain's responsibility to sit there and take in all this information Mm -hmm. and then and and ask people's input and then and then come uh, come up with a with a conclusion. And then you run the conclusion by everybody and see if everybody's comfortable with that. And then, and then after you've made that decision, you say, okay, how's it going after we made this decision? Should we change this around the way? And, and so it's, it's all these processes that mm-hmm. prevent us from not, not making errors, but acknowledging errors, you know, looking at it, having someone else saying, Captain, you're doing this. Did you set your altimeter correctly, Captain? Oh, no, I, I'm oh. 10, 10. You know, I mean, it's, it's this input from everybody to make it a synergistic environment that prevents you from making, you know, the, the big air, you know, um, yeah. it's a multiple of three. They always say, if you don't stop the chain at, at three, usually something not real nice happens. Okay. So the guys are all trained to do this. And I yeah. open, you open up communication. Another really important part about being in a cockpit in an airplane is 
open communication. communication yeah. Cause you might be yeah. flying with people um, that you haven't flown with before. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's where training comes in where you're all trained the same procedures are all the same. So you can get in the cockpit with somebody that you have never flown with before and you know that they were trained exactly. the same way you were, that they know what they're going to do. You know what you're, yep. you're going to do. Now, if it's a really new guy, I'm going to ask more questions mm-hmm. <laughs> as captain. And I, and, I, and, and I brief that. I say, if I ask you something, it's not that I don't think you can't. You're doing something improperly. I just want to make sure that I know. All right. Uh, you know, I, I think you're right. The Everyone in the, the cockpit, you are all doing the, um, the things that you are, are trained to do. And you go through all of right. those steps and processes and, and, you know, maybe and checklists. That's the, yep. The checklists. And maybe that's yeah. the, the takeaway. So you make sure you've done everything. <laughs> yes. The, the takeaway for all of us is that, you know, what are the things that we can control um, and you know, how is it we can be focused on all of those things, you know, just like, right. you know, you are. So before when we talk flight. about procedures and you, that's one of the ways that you eliminate some of the anxiety also for your own self, that to make things predictable, to make things, uh, um, organized and in control. That is, that is a way to feel that, you know, um, to have confidence in, in what's going on. Um, when things, you know, don't go well, you also have the confidence because you've trained for things that don't go well. I kind of laugh sometimes. I go, when we go to training, it's like disaster training. You know, you, it's, you know it's going to be always disaster. <laughs> and then it's going to be overwhelming disasters, one more after another, so that you can get used to trying to organize more than one at a time. And most of the time in real life, it's, okay, we lost a generator on that engine or we did this. And everybody's comfortable with that because we know what we need to do. We know the backup systems. We know things to to rely on uh, 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 and and to rely on our training. Mm -hmm. So the church is kind of like that kind of training, right? Even though (laughs) I wish I was better at, at, at it sometimes to think that, I'm being trained at church to to rely on God and rely on some of these, you know, uh, on His Word and things like that. But uh, <laughs> I was going to say, well, that's like you know, coming back to what you said before too. You have to practice it. Uh, you know, yes, it's not the kind of thing good. that you can just turn to once in your life. And you know, um, you're. I yeah. think you're maybe. It's more of a benefit to you when you when you practice it, and uh, and, and maybe practice is a is a good thing to talk about. I mean, I try to read. I try to keep up. But but my I, I was talking to my my son my uh, son in law the other day about you know, what's going to happen with his job and things like that during, because of this COVID crisis. And, and I said, this is where I have a really hard time with faith. A lot of times training tries to give you every situation you think you can possibly find yourself in. So you, you don't, I don't know if you have to rely on faith as much, but they want to make you feel confident in your in, in future activities or, or things that could possibly go wrong on an airplane. But when it comes back to decision making in the airplane, 
Um, and, and, and I think some people wonder, like, how do you go long distances with things like that? Well, an old captain told me one time, don't take your problems into the air. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, how do I, you know, use that at home? But one of the examples was we had this airplane full of people leaving early in the morning to go to Honolulu. Mm-hmm. And there's 355 people on board, plus crew, plus pilots. And the main lavatory system didn't work. So there's like, you know, nine bathrooms on the airplane. But when you shut down the main system, which was like five of them, or I think four, well, four, the center ones, the one that for wheelchair access, things, you're going, and they're saying, well, you're legal to go with it that way. And I'm saying, you know, <laughs> this is an eight, hour, eight and a half hour right. flight. And that's not the longest flight. We've got 355 people. How, when, because here's what happens if the other tanks fill up, yeah. all the bathrooms shut down. Right. Well, I said, how much capacity do these other ones have? And no one could answer the question. Mm-hmm. So I said, I think we need to fix this problem. And, and, and then there's all this pressure to go, you know, there's all yeah. people on board want to go. Everybody, you know, there's a limitations on crew duty times. There's management saying we need the gate to, to get, you know, get off the gate so we can put another airplane here. You know, we need that. I said, you know, we need to fix this problem, you know, yeah. and they, and they're saying, and then they try to say, it's going to take two hours to get this machine over here to do this. And I'm sitting there going, do well, it. Let's do it. <laughs> I said, do it. I said, okay, well, what about if we take off here and then we land in San Francisco and they dump the labs in San Francisco and do this? I said, you're kidding me, right? <laughs> and, the, and then they're, they're going, can we set this up? And I'm talking to dispatch and they're going, well, then we're going to have to reflight plan this and do that. I mean, it's just, I said, um, let's just fix the problem. Yeah. I was so we say. end up being, you know, four hours late to Honolulu and they found the problem, which was a good problem to find okay. on the airplane. They're like, oh, I'm glad we did it here because we wouldn't right. be able I was to do say. it someplace it else because we're a major maintenance but, and it's but that's just the thing it's lavatories you're 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 not only thinking about do i have enough fuel on board do i have enough water do i have enough you know yeah. do i have enough lavatories how to, be, how to keep people comfortable for an eight-hour flight <laughs> i'm sorry nobody can use the lavatories anymore <laughs> we got last two and a half hours and you know it's always the last two and a half hours everybody's right. getting up to go to the bathroom right oh, so it's just one of those days and so yeah. when i get there you know i call home and tell Debbie, you know, well, we were four hours late because of me. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> like, the lavatories didn't work, you know? <laughs> I'm sure people appreciated that, though. Mid- I was well, hoping because they were clapping when we finally got it unclogged, you know? <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you really, like, you know, experienced it all uh, over the years, haven't you? No, that was, that's just a good, that's a, just a good story of saying, yeah. You got to take everybody's input and then you've still got to make a decision, you know, yeah, I, and, I, and, and, and life is that way a lot of times, you know, you're kind of yeah. sitting there by yourself and taking all the, you know, the punishment of making a good decision too sometimes. Yeah. So yeah, trying to uh, weigh everything and do, do the best and make uh-huh. the best decision with mm-hmm. what you have available. But, but the other part is, is it's not ego that's making you make the decision. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually humility. It's saying, how would I be if I was in the back? And mm-hmm. and 
And I can't take it as I'm this authoritarian person that I just take control over everything. It doesn't really work that way. It used to be that way, but they've taken that away and said, you know, it's a group effort. Mm-hmm. We get better results when everybody has input and, and, and things like that, and not just an authoritarian type person mm-hmm. um, telling you what to do. Um, it was really interesting because I was really surprised when Muriel talked about the army that was, you know, chasing Pharaoh's army that was chasing Moses and the Israelites and talking about, and I felt the same thing. I was like, and then he, you know, they stuck the chariots in the mud and then the walls of water came and, and they, and then the bodies saying, I'm like, you know, just because you're in an army doesn't mean you were a total believer in what you were marching to do that you lost your life because of this. And you're thinking, okay, God has to think about those people too. Right. I mean, I was thinking that exact same thing and I had never thought about that in that story before, you know, that here's this authority and, and these people are, I'm like, Whoa, who wants it? Who wants that authority? Who wants to, to take on that as, as their thing. But you know, life and death is kind of like that. And Muriel, I thought, did a really good job of of kind of describing it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is one of those Bible stories that kind of, even as kids, thinking, well, that's kind of a gruesome thought to think right. of. So, right. But, but well, I like John's. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, um, you know, certainly you have experienced so many things, too, over the, your career of flying. Um, but, you know, this this last weekend uh, was the 19th anniversary of 9-11. And, um, you know, just just a horrific day um, within our country and the loss of so, so many good lives. And I can't even imagine what it was like uh you know, at that time, uh, you know, as a pilot or, or to be in any of the, you know, air control towers as, as people were trying to scramble to figure out what was going on and how to, um, you know, safely. The military guys. Yeah. I that mean, had to be scrambled to possibly shoot down an airliner. Yeah. Interesting enough, you know, one of my, my co-pilots was a colonel in the guard that was in an F-16 that was sent out to shoot down a United airplane. Oh. And you think about these things, and no, that was it was it was a horrible day. It it was a day that took me by surprise because I was at home, um, with 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 Debbie, and she was going to the hospital for kidney stones. So I had dropped my trip, which I was scheduled to fly the eleven o'clock um, seven six seven flight out of Boston to Los Angeles, wow. and. Um, yeah, I was sitting reading the paper and I got a call from my sister who lived in London and who said, uh, you're home and, and, and took me by surprise. And she was very intense. And I'm like, and it, so it took me by surprise. I like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm home. Debbie's going to the hospital with, with kidney. So she goes, no, you're home. You're not flying. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm home. I, I dropped the trip. You know, I dropped this trip this week. So, um, she goes, you haven't been watching TV or anything, have you? And I said, no. And I turned it on and I saw, you know, what we all saw on television. And it, it's it's gut-wrenching. Right. It's absolutely gut-wrenching. And, 
another event that is just I remember when we had a, a DC-10 that that crashed in Sioux City and I was coming to work that day and all the cameras were out front and I was getting off the bus and these people were all trying to talk to me and I had no idea what was going on and and I get to the operations and I was a co-pilot at 27 and this captain, it was so quiet in operations and this captain just looked at me and I'll never forget it. It's who just said, we lost a 10 and you just, mm-hmm. you just, you, you can't fathom it mm-hmm. and you can't fathom disaster of all the things you train for. Right. 9-11 was nothing these guys ever trained for. Yeah. You didn't train to defend yourself in the cockpit which we did afterwards. You didn't train to, to how to get out of harm's way by bending backwards. And eventually we got tasers and things like that. But these, these guys went to work happy because it's, it's one of the more satisfying jobs. You know when you get there and you've done a, a, a good job of preparing and, and, and taking off and, and cruising and you're getting people to where they want to go. And to all of a sudden be faced with something where you, there was no reaction because you, in your minds, you would never have dreamed of that happening. Never. Mm. And uh, going back to work after that was, well, a, a different type of preparedness. You know, you look at weather, you look at mechanical stuff you look at bulletins and and things notice to airmen stuff or and all of a sudden you're going how we how are we going to protect ourselves in the in the airplane and my first flight was a a 767 from chicago to um uh, las vegas and we had three people on board of an airplane that can carry 250 wow and I was surprised we even had three people on board. Mm-hmm. And uh, flight attendants were nervous. We were trying to calm people down. You know, you're opening up communication. We were talking about, you know, if you're not comfortable, please, you don't need to be on the flight. You don't need to be here. But, but like any time that you're challenged with fear, like we were talking about, is somehow you've got to overcome that fear. You've got to get back on the horse, as they used to say. Yeah. You've got to get back in the cockpit. And the visualizations you had during the way and the discussions we had during the time, like, well, what are you going to do if something happened? And, and those are the discussions you're having, which you would never have dreamed of having in a cockpit before. Mm-hmm. Like, if somebody breaks into the cockpit, what are we, what are we going to do, you know? Um, uh, and then when we were there and, and, and in the morning going out of operations and looking at that airplane and I, I was sharing with Sherry here that um, you look at this beautiful piece of equipment of all the men whose intelligence and insight and inventiveness and everything went into this, this gorgeous machine that, that flies in the air and can carry 250 people at almost the speed of sound you know, across the country and shuts it in a short distance, a short time. And, and what a beautiful machine it was. And it, and it's a, it's this big oval and you can't believe it can get off the ground. And I go, and these people can destroy it in, in a second. They think of it, not of how amazing this thing is and what it took to build something like this, but how easy it was to destroy it. And we saw to see that, you know, I, I try to reference that in other parts of my life, but I, it was my job and 
I appreciated the intelligence that went into this this machine and and all the uh, lives that day i mean just a just a you know immense tragedy for our country and i mean it's kind of amazing that you were able to you know get back into um the cockpit after that too but you know i think um you know, there's, there's so many things that would, you know, seek to make us afraid and keep us afraid and, and keep us, um, you know, locked up and in isolation from one another. But, you know, we're, we have to, you know, keep going and trust that, you know, God goes with us wherever we go and that, you know, we can get through things, um, even really difficult and painful things such as that too. And, um, you know, and, and even this time right now that we're living in, uh, where so much is unknown and a little fearful too. Um, but that was the, what stop, you just said. Keep going. Sherry, what you just said, unknown. Mm. You you try to produce as much known as you can, mm. and it's the unknown that. But I, you know, we, yeah, there is that fear of that. You know, I mean, but this was all of a sudden a whole different fear of going and flying. Do you know what I mean? Right. You you overcome it all through training and this and everything. This was not losing an engine, which I was trained for. This is Mm -hmm. defending myself physically in a cockpit from being killed. That's the the concept of that just was, it is terrifying still Mm -hmm. that people try to break into, into cockpits, you know, and what are you going to do? And of course we took in more protocols and here's this real quickly. People did quit and even pilots uh, stopped flying yeah. because of this, because of that loss of control, of not feeling they could overcome their fear or their anxiety at work on something like that we couldn't train for. So the airline took us into training. We got tasers. We learned to use that. We did psychological training, mm-hmm. um, uh, talking about you need to talk to people because there's normal, a line of normal, and, 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 and we kept getting beaten down with this line of normal because um, nothing was coming back. Our careers were at stake. And this, this depression, mm. how do you overcome that? And thank God I have God. I have a wonderful wife, uh, a faithful wife. I have uh, family uh, because that was a way. And, and I had church. Sometimes I don't rely on church as much as I should. Well, I was going to say, you know, in a, in a positive way, it was maybe all of those, those people and forces in your life that kept you grounded <laughs> um, in a positive way and not a, a negative way. I mean, just to, to, you know, be able to kind of, you know, put one step in front of the other, you know, in the weeks and months and years after. And, that, and eventually they had to get the, the, a normal flying public to not have fear again. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's enough fear involved with some people not thinking about the mechanical part, but now to think of another aspect of flying that they never dreamed of. Yeah. And so and now, they put more security in pr- place and they put more, you know, yeah. we have a, a, a lockdown door and yeah. we have different training now. And actually we have, we did have security briefings, but we have more significant security briefings now. Mm-hmm. We have so there's all these things that that they eventually put in place after the fact mm-hmm. to relieve some of that stress and anxiety of this type of unexpected thing. 
And now I'm sure airline industry, the they're looking at, you know, how to, how to filter air and how to, you know, clean surfaces so that, you know, people can feel comfortable flying in the midst of, um, you know, everything happening with COVID. And you know what the thing is, Sherry, about that also is so many of those things were already in place. But they, why would you talk about it? Right. Because when I brought an airplane in from, you know, from a, a, a foreign country, an Asian country, possibly, and things like that. And um, we did, we do more hyper disinfecting than people would realize. Um, even just thinking about this in your house, just an insect. So they had, you know, we had insect control. We have, we, and we did, you know, they, they had these, uh, I don't, there's just a, all of a sudden that we became more aware of all the things they did to sanitize an airplane when it came in from an international marketplace. And, and, and some of the things were from the, some of the past things that had happened, SARS and H1N1 and things like that, that we didn't feel that it was the airlines bringing things like that in necessarily um, because of how we cleaned our airplanes afterwards. And, and we clean our carts and they get steamed and they get the, Mm-hmm. It was, you know, but now they want to emphasize it so people feel safe again. Yeah. So now it's advertised where it really didn't need to be advertised before. You got an airplane, you just assumed it was going to be clean, right? Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't, most people go, I'm not flying that airline. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, good good information for us to know, too. Um, yes. You know, so they might be doing more things mm-hmm. and, and and stuff like that, but, you know, They've they've done some really good stuff. And anytime I report anything, you know, which is another part of my job coming back in things that were going wrong on the airplane, you know, the coffee maker that didn't work, the lavatory that didn't flush the, you know, the the one that maybe overflowed. (laughs) It's like uh, now you have to sanitize this to within standards. If someone got sick on the airplane. Right. I mean, no, then, and there's very rigid standards to do this. Um, and again, I, we, I had a, a person get sick on the ground before we left, and that took an hour and a half delay just to sanitize the entire area that they were in and things like that because yeah. it's requ- I mean, you're in the airplane with something, but I got to tell you about our filters. We, our filters are antivirus filters. We have these really great HEPA filters on a 777. Okay. And they've had them for years, but nobody has had advertised that, right? You know, so yeah. we circulate the air three times a minute. Think about that. Wow. The entire volume of the airplane is circulated three times a minute. You wouldn't think that, but there's a big volume of airplane, but it does. It's that, it's that powerful inside the airplane, you know. So well, now they'll be putting more of this stuff information out for people yeah. to to, well, to alleviate that fear. Yeah, and I was going to say, there's so many things that we don't know as a passenger on a plane that you know. Sure. You've all always kind of known, and you just kind of go through those checklists every time too, and um, and so. Plus, I make up my own. <laughs> <laughs> that's good too, and you know, again, I think maybe that's just um, you know. What, what can we, what can we control and, you know, how do we not let our fears um, kind of stop us from living and, and stop us from well, being the people that we are? So, well, the people that they hire to do the jobs we do up front, we're pretty people that like to be in control. <laughs> I don't, we don't like surprises necessarily. 
you know, but when you get surprised, you feel you can handle them. Mm-hmm. That that's that's a psychology they train into you also. That mm-hmm. hey, you're good at that. You can you can do this. You can do this. You know, and and I think life is that too. I think the church says, hey, you can do this. You can do this. There's there's help here. He's here to help, <laughs> and we that's have pastors cool. here to help. We yeah. have the community here to help. Um, so I think that is a good. great, great place to end. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for, for being with us this day and just sharing some of your many stories. And um, It seems pretty scattered to me, but it, <laughs> I, I hope it works out. I hope no, people are it interested. has been so good to, to have you with us today. And um, thank you for sharing. And thank you for all of our listeners for joining us this day um, for this week's episode of Belief Beat. Um, yes. where we talk about things that matter with people who matter.